The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through mission, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Hey, good morning. My name is Ben. I'm on staff here at Restoration Southside, and um, thanks for being here this morning. And thank you for the scripture reading. Uh, for many of you, and some of you, you've gone through the uh, Intro to Restoration class. And what that is, is it's uh, people who are interested in being uh, members of Restoration Southside. And they meet other people who are also interested and also learn more about the DNA of our church. And one song that I play in it is uh, a song by Andrew Peterson, and it's called Everybody's Got a Song. And what it is, is Andrew Peterson writing and saying uh, the city he loves and lives in, in Nashville. And he's saying all of these different things that make up the city, whether it's people or places, and accentuates all of these different ideas about what makes up a city and what's the purpose of it. And he says, uh, in, the, in the chorus, he says, Oh, I love this city. Everybody's got a song. It's like a secret we were always meant to share. From the church on every corner to the Broadway honky-tonks, we've got a million songs that mingle in the air. Oh, I love this city. And what this song is and what those specific lyrics are talking about is uh, there is beauty in every city. From the brick and mortar uh, to the people that walk on the streets and live and inhabit and, and make beautiful uh, a city, there is beauty in every city. There's uh, characteristics and things that make up cities. But what's important is, and what we should know, is that cities have more density of the image of God in it than any other place. And it's, in fact, uh, a thing that uh, Scripture talks about. It's not just something that human beings made up, this idea of cities. But Scripture has outlined the framework and idea and theme of a city. And we'll see that this morning as the author of Hebrews uh, writes about it. And so uh, you and I love this city. Right? I love Chattanooga. You love Chattanooga or wherever uh, city that you reside in as you're watching this now. We love it. But why do we love it? Why do we uh, love the things that make up the city? Yes, we do love the food scene and the restaurants and the nature and the river walk and all these different things and the river. We love it all, but why? And what's good about it? But, but really also, what are we to do about it? How are Christians supposed to love a city? And why are Christians supposed to love a city? And the author of Hebrews is saying that what you do and who you are is deeply tied into every part of your life. Your Christian faith is not just for Sunday morning, nor for just a privatized use, but it's for public good, for common good, and for human flourishing. And so this morning, we'll see it as the author of Hebrews shows of the value of cities. And what I would ask of you this morning is, uh, don't just listen to a sermon. But I would invite you to bring in the parts of your life to see where you are supposed to have things altered 
are renovated, where application, new applications need to be brought in and applied. You are many things, just as I am many things. We're residents, we're neighbors, we're um, daughters, sons, fathers, mothers. The list goes on and on. Business owners. We are many things. And because of that, we are required to see things in a certain way that's redemptive. And so the only way that this morning there will be any kind of growth or transformation or even hints of beauty and redemption is if you bring the things of your life and allow Holy Spirit to speak into them. And with that in mind, we'll look at three things. We'll look at first, city living. Second, exilic living. And third, redemptive living. And with that in mind, let's pray as we look at God's word. Lord, you love cities, and you love them more than we do. And Lord, you love Chattanooga even more than we do. And Lord, your view and goal and end and vision of renewal and redemption is even bigger than ours. And so this morning, may we, wherever we are in life, tired, confused, frustrated, wherever we are, see the beauty of the redemption that you are working and the redemption you're calling us and inviting us into. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, So first we see a city living. City living. In chapter 11 of Hebrews, uh, there is what's called the Hall of Faith. All of these people in the Bible are talked about. And they're talked about in how God used them and how God worked through them. And they're broken people and they're messed up people. And they're, they're people who are marked by sin. And yet it shows how these people had faith and how God used them and the beautiful things in their life. And at the very end of Hebrews 11, it says this. It says, these hall of faith, these people, uh, it said they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So what it's saying is, these heroes of the faith long to be uh, whisked away to another city. They lived with another city in mind, as God prepared it for them as they lived on earth. But at the, uh, the end of the section that we're looking at this morning in Hebrews 13, it says something different. Maybe a little contradictory. And it says, Do not neglect to do good and, share, and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And it's saying, uh, do good where you are. Uh, sacrifice where you are. Well, so which one is it? Do we uh, long to go to the, the heavenly city that's being prepared for us by God? Or do we uh, do good and live in this city, in this world, in this life? Which one is it? And the author of Hebrews is saying that to live in the city is to have a knowledge of two cities. To live in this life, we have to know that there are two cities. An earthly one and a heavenly one. So what do we do with an earthly one and a heavenly one? That, right, They're both here, they're both present, and we're holding them. How do we see that our hope of heaven and our life on earth is not contradictory? 
And actually, we don't have to manufacture that idea. We can actually look, and Scripture tells us they both go hand in hand. The author of uh, Hebrews is telling them how they go hand in hand. Now, our temptation in our modern day, and even really in all of life, is to view uh, the heavenly city as good. It's good, it's perfect, it's only good, and the earthly city we live in is bad. And our greatest hope is to leave this earthly city and go away to the heavenly city. But the downside, right, the, the, the other side of that coin is the fact that there's, that shows that there's no good in the lives that we live right now, that there's nothing good about this earth. That in fact, that there's, there's nothing redemptive about the world we live in. And our Christian faith malfunctions when it looks at this world and says, nothing good here. Nothing, nothing uh, redeemable here. Nothing enjoyable here. When we simply look at this world as nothing is good, we are only at that point souls to be saved and whisked away. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, you are to have city living. So what does this city living look like? And it's this idea of being a resident alien. Now, I'm going to say this word a lot uh, this morning, but uh, what uh, we need to do is define it and have it set in our mind of what a resident alien is. Because that's what faithful city living is. So what is a resident alien? And a resident alien is this. We live here. We are a residence here on earth. And we're an alien because our citizenship is in heaven. In Philippians 3.20, Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are resident aliens as we live and reside and have residence on this earth and have our citizenship in an alien city, an alien world, a different world than this place. So, uh, what does this mean? It doesn't mean that this place is bad. Because in Genesis, when God created the world, after every day he said, as he looked on his creation, it's good. It's good. And at the end of uh, six days, he saw what he had made and said, it's very good. And then he rested, not because he was tired, but because creation was perfect. And even as sin has thwarted and marred and broken the world, this earthly world has not lost its inherent goodness. It hasn't. It hasn't. Because we look at this world and we look at this place, we look at this city, and we see that there is purpose and good in it. That there is inherent value in it. And that we can't have the idea that our biggest hope is to leave this world. Because that's actually not God's blueprint and his plan for redemption. We look at the, the, the badness of this world and the brokenness of this world. And we know that it will not win the day. And when we say that it will win the day, that's when we begin to think the thoughts of, I need to get out of here. My greatest hope is in heaven, so I need to leave here. Now, that being said, and there's a caveat. We 
as Christians, have to practice the art of lament. Because what lament is, is saying, God, you have said all of these things about you, that you're good, you're holy, you're righteous, you're powerful, you're sovereign, you're providential, you are all these things. But what I feel in life, it seems like those things aren't true. And therefore, I'm going to bank and lean into who you have said that you are. So we are not to be a people who say darkness and gloom and brokenness wins the day. But we are to say, my God is greater in the fact that he has a purpose for this place and in the way that we lament and long for that purpose to be more and more true. In our world today, we have to know that we are resident aliens. Uh, For many people in our world today, the church looks like this. It can look like uh, seeing the world around it as them. There's us and there's them. They see that there's nothing good in the world and for them, they're only aliens. For them, uh, they may value truth more than they value love. They're only aliens. And for others, they may look at the world and they say, they're us. It's all us. We're all one together. They say everyone belongs. But they, they expense their value and convictions for belonging only. Therefore, everyone belongs. And they're only residents. They're not aliens. So, what are we to do? There's a theologian that talks about a mystical faith compared to a prophetic faith. A mystical faith looks and holds uh, the truth that what our purpose and hope of our faith is, is to uh, leave this earth because nothing is good here and go to the arms of God. Only then will there ever be peace and we'll stay in the arms of God. Whereas a prophetic faith says, no, 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 we experience God And that experience of God shapes and forms our life now. Therefore, there is good in this world, and there's a purpose, and there's redemption possible. And the Christian faith malfunctions when there is a mystical faith, because it has no category in goodness for the world around us, when indeed the Christian faith is a prophetic one. And so what I would offer this morning and ask this morning is, where have we called things bad that are actually good. And let's get personal. Where in the specific city of Chattanooga, Tennessee, that we call home, have we looked at a people who are bad and not good? They don't bear beauty at all. Or how about this? What neighborhoods do we look at in a Chattanooga, a city of two cities? What neighborhoods have we looked at and said, there's nothing good that can come of that. That they're the, the brokenness of the city. That, we, that we, This one part of the city is good, but this is kind of this uh, darker, harder, uh, more uh, rougher part. And there's no way you could ever possess beauty or cultivation or restoration. But there's superiority in that view. What place, what people, what person, what neighborhood 
Do you need to have the view of God, which is this, to look at a city and know that as resident aliens, there's beauty in it because our faith is not mystical where we zoom away, but it's prophetic. And that the Christian faith says something about the beauty and the brokenness. Where do we need to have renovations in our understanding as we live life in the world around us? Which leads us to our our next idea of uh, exilic living. We are city livers as resident aliens, those who live here but but have our citizenship somewhere else. But what does that look like? How do we live as resident aliens? And it's through exilic living. Exilic living. Now, some people uh, in um, the past years have emphasized to resolve the tension between these two cities, there's a phrase that you and I have heard much of, and that's we are to be in the world but not of the world. That the way we resolve the tension of the earthly city uh, and the heavenly city is that we are to be in the world but not of the world. And while that has pure intentions, it's really not sufficient. And here's why it's not sufficient. It's because even in Jesus' day, the opponents of Jesus, the Pharisees, were in the world, but not of the world. Right? They, they were in the world, but they hated the world. And so how are we to be a people who, not like the opponents of Jesus, see the world properly? And it's this, it's that we as the church and the body of Christ and as Christians are for the world. That we see the beauty and the potential and the calling that God says this world is good and it says we are for that beauty. Exilic living, which we'll tease out in a second, is not not in the world but of the world. Not, Not that kind of talk, it's they're for the place that they are aliens in. Christians are often thought of only caring for their own tribe and not for the flourishing of their city. And maybe that's rightfully thought of too. Maybe that's something that that some um, certain people have earned that reputation. But Hebrews 13, 10 through 15 says something different. It says, and hang with me because we'll, we'll interpret it, but it says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the body, bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for the sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The author of Hebrews was talking to a presumed Uh, uh, Jewish audience. They were Jewish Christians who were persecuted for their uh, Christian faith and they were falling back into culturally accepted Judaism. And what he's saying is 
Jesus was sacrificed outside the city on the cross. And the Jewish custom was to have sacrifices in the city, in the temple. And once the sacrifice of the animal was done, the animals were taken outside the city and burned. Right? It was this landfill. There was no good left in it. So they were taken outside the city and discarded, done away with. And that landfill, that place of discarding, is the very place Jesus died. And it's saying to the Jewish Christians, it's saying don't go back to the place that sacrifices inside the city, only to discard things outside the city. Rather, go to the place where Jesus was sacrificed because Jesus was sacrificed for the sake of the world, not just for a single tribe or a single people. It was for the world. And that's what the call of the people of Hebrews and the call of the church is not to live for themselves and their small little tribe, but rather for the entire world. It's for the world because our living is not about power. It's always about welfare. Exilic living is always about welfare, not about seeking power. Because many Christians think to be most effective in our world today, what, what do we need? Right, what's the secret sauce, the ingredient that we're missing? And people think we need, well, we need a majority political sway. Or we need to dominate the culture with our own ideas. Or we need to get rid of anyone that thinks differently than us and snuff them out. But when in fact our living is not about power, it's always about other. It's always about welfare. Christians must be for the city. That's why it says in, in verse 16 of this chapter in Hebrews, it says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This term, exilic living, comes from the Old Testament, where the people of God were overthrown by an enemy, and that the enemy of Babylon had come in and forced an exile, hint the term exilic. So they'd forced an exile, and the people of God were in exile from their land and their place and their power. And, and God speaks to the people as they're in exile, as their enemy is reigning over them, as they are foreigners. And God speaks to his people through the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah tells them in Jeremiah 29, it says this, here's what the people are to do while they're in exile, while they're in captivity. It says, this is what the Lord God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. So that too, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. God is saying to his people who have just been kicked out of their city, 
who've been kicked out of their powerful reign, kicked out of any affluence, he's saying this to them. Your purpose in exile is to live for the sake of the people in the city that is not yours. You are to live for the sake of your enemy. And it says, seek the prosperity and the peace of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. To be a resident alien means this, to live for a city that we are residing in and yet have no citizenship in. Because when it prospers, we prosper. When it prospers, the Lord prospers. We're not supposed to be just in the world, but not of the world. We are supposed to be for the world, to love the world. Jesus went outside of the city and was sacrificed for the city. And the author of Hebrews is telling his audience and us today, you are to live as those who love a city that will never love you back. You're to serve a city that may never serve you back or give anything in return. But here's the joy of it. When it prospers, you prosper. When the city of Chattanooga prospers, the church prospers. They're not exclusive. They never should be exclusive because the church is not about a tribe. It's about the flourishing of the world around it. Miroslav Volf, a theologian at Yale, says... In his book, A Public Faith, he says, Engagement is not a matter of either speaking or doing, not a matter of either either offering a compelling intellectual vision or embodying a set of alternative practices, not a matter of either merely making manifest the richness and depth of interior life or merely working to change the institutions of society, not a matter of either only displaying alternative politics as gathered in Eucharistic celebrations, or merely working for the change as the dispersed people of God. It's all of these things and more. The whole person in all aspects of their life is engaged in fostering human flourishing and seeking the common good. What does that mean? The whole person is involved in the flourishing of the city. That it's not just about souls, though it is, because we are people with souls. But it involves our minds and our thinking, that we're to love the schools of our city. That's about the work of our hands, and that we're supposed to love the people who, who tend and make and care for the brick and mortar of our city, who make it beautiful. The construction workers, the teachers, all of these different things, the counselors who, who cultivate a common good in those who need counsel. Shana Ramsey does a beautiful job at cutting hair. And the reason that she does such a beautiful job and the reason her job is so powerful is that she highlights beauty in every person, even in their hair. Nate DeReicher and Casey Simons sell software at Squid. And why is that good? Because they sell things so that others uh, can do and produce common good, even in the business world. Because the business world is not exclusive to the flourishing of the city. Brent Harding manages 
Main Street meets. And he says there's dignity in the people that come and sit down at the table. And they have such dignity that they deserve a meal that is ethically produced. What I'm saying is this. Every vocation has the potential of great, deep, powerful, meaningful redemption as the city flourishes. And as resident aliens, we are not supposed to build up and fortify walls around the church. We, like Jesus, are supposed to go to the place where we serve a city even if they will never serve us back. We are to love a people even if they will never love us back. Because that's what Christ did. That's what we are called to do. It's not about power. It's about welfare. Christianity never exists for itself, but for the flourishing of the world around it. So my question this morning is, where have you given the idea of success the ingredient of human-given power? Where do you think you need more power to be more successful? When in fact, to be truly successful is not to seek power in this world, but it's actually to love the world even if they don't love us back, to serve the world even if they never serve the Christians in it. Jesus came, Mark 10, 45, to serve, not be served. And finally, there's... There's redemptive living. We are resident aliens who live in the city, city living. And we are also uh, exilic living. We live as those who flourish and live for the city, even though it's not our own. We seek its peace and prosperity. But we are to live as those with redemptive living. And that is to say that there is more to us than meets the eye. The vision of Christ that he has for the city of Chattanooga, for the state of Tennessee, for the United States of America, but always with the whole world in mind. His vision for his whole entire world that he called good in creation and is thwarted by sin and that we feel the effects of sin in now is always greater and more powerful and more beautiful and more redemptive than our own vision for it. And so because of that, we follow his striving and stride and what he does in his power. That song that I quoted earlier at the beginning uh, tells not just of the bricks and mortar and the people and all the songs that make up the people, but it says this. It says when there are hard times in the city. When it talks about the things that, that burden a city, it says this. It says, when the river is in flood... With all the sorrow that you feel, well, we've got just the song you need. I think you know it. It's a song that came before us. It'll be here when we're gone. Sometimes I I think I hear it drifting on the wind. It tells me there is a city where the band plays on and on, and every soul is going to sing the last amen. What it's saying is, Our world plays into the tapestry of eternity. That this world is not full of only bad things. Things that should be discarded away with and done away with. But in fact, this earthly city 
finds its fullness when the heavenly city comes down and meets it. That's the vision of redemption Christ has for our city of Chattanooga, for our world. It says in Revelation 21, this convergence of the heavenly city and the earthly city, the convergence of two cities, and it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bridegroom, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. What Revelation 21 tells us is this. The beauty of this world will be complete and pure when the heavenly city comes down. Therefore, as resident aliens who live in the earthly city and have citizenship in the heavenly city, work for the flourishing of the place we are in right now. Because Jesus will make all things new. It's not a brand new thing where he wipes away everything. It's a renovation. It's a restoration. Hence the name of our church. And he does away with the things that we loathe because God himself loathes death and crying and pain and mourning. He takes away the old order of things, the things that we feel that burden us. And he comes and he brings newness. So how do we live in light of this coming convergence of two cities where heaven comes down and meets earth and makes all things beautiful and all things new? How do we live as resident aliens? And it's this. We are to love stories. First, we are to love stories because every person we encounter has a song. Everybody's got a song. And that song has these stories. It's not about books or, and, uh, and um, movies, stories. It's about people. Everyone has a story and what has brought them to this place and that, that they're being shaped and formed by. And we are to love stories because each story deserves to be heard because of the dignity in it. We are to love and revel in the fact that people are different than us. Just as every thumbprint and fingerprint is different, so every story is different. Therefore, we don't look at people and and size them up by the sum of their greatest accomplishments or their greatest defeat and failure. I know I feel most alone and isolated when I hear myself say, if only someone knew how I felt and what I was going through. And because of that, stories matter. And as the people of God, as we seek the flourishing of the city, we are to love the stories that make up the city we live in. And second, something we talked about last week, we are to practice hospitality. One way of loving stories is practicing hospitality because it's saying we love stories enough and have see dignity in the people around us enough 
to invite them to our table. And the truth is, whether it's a, a literal table or a figurative table, we are to be hospitable, especially to the people who have no table at all to sit at. How do we love stories really well? We are to give light to the people who have no table to sit at, who have no ear to, to, to hear the stories, the things that make up their life, the things that plague them, who have made them, the things that in their past have been so formative. Those are the people that need to be heard and said and hear, I'm for you. Just as Christians uh, love stories and practice hospitality, really most of all and most formative. And again, I invite your life into this, your job, your roles, your families, your relationships. Christians are to be people who see with redemptive imagination. We see and have a vision of redemptive imagination. The way Jesus encountered all people was not by marking and defining them by their biggest accomplishment or worst of sins. He always saw more in them than they saw in themselves. And as the people of God who have been transformed, we are to see people not by the sum of their greatness or their smallness. Rather, we're to see them redemptively because all people marked with dignity have the great potential with eternity in mind because this world taps into the tapestry of eternity. Therefore, we are to see people just as Jesus sees them. As we love a city as resident aliens and seek its flourishing. In the Restoration Southside logo, uh, there are three things at play. First, you see a window. There are windows that make up our city. On the south side, there are historic buildings that are made new. Not torn down and built up, but made new and restored. Hint the name. And in that window on the logo, there are city blocks and streets that make up these different lines. Because the beauty of the city are the streets and the brick and mortar. And the third part is the cross in the middle of it all. Restoration Southside exists to restore people and places. We believe every person has a song. We believe every place has a song. We believe every person and place in this earthly city fits in beautifully with redemption when the heavenly city meets it and makes it all new and all restored. Jesus is inviting us this very day, whether you have had a faith that is stalling and grown dust, whether you had a faith that is vibrant and pure, whether you have a faith that's struggling and strained, whether there is no idea who this person of Jesus is, Jesus says to us, I value your story, and there's no story or brokenness in you or in this world that I cannot fix and restore and make beautiful and new. 
The invitation of the Christian life is this. Love a city that will never love us back because there's beauty in it. When it flourishes, God delights in it. And the church flourishes. We are to be a people who are marked by the fact that we love a city who may never love us back. Not for our own good, but always for the good of others. Let's pray. Lord, we are confused. And we have been maybe trained the wrong way and maybe we see things poorly uh, through poor eyes and vision that's marked by brokenness and defined by brokenness. And Lord, in seeing poorly and in uh, learning poorly, would you remind us that there is redemptive imagination because Jesus, you can do all things. There's nothing out of your control. That's a hard thing to believe. That's a hard thing to walk in as we are resident aliens, people who live here but have a citizenship somewhere else. It's hard to live as exiles who are for a people who are different and maybe not for us. But by your spirit, may we love stories. Just as you have transformed us, so Lord, may we live to see you transform others. Lord, make us a people who invite others to the table so that it's crowded in the best of ways because it's pregnant with the possibility of redemption. And Lord, give us a sense that you are making all things new through something as uh, even the cities that we live in with the windows and the streets, there's a cross at the center of all of it that makes it all new and restored. Make that true and remind us this very day as we are husbands and wives, sons and daughters, as we are employees and employers, as we are citizens of your city, make us faithful residents of this city. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.